0: And what I want to do is I want to just start by reading um, from this passage. So uh, it's not going to be up on the screen, but the reference will be up on the screen. And I want to start in verse 3. It says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now listen to this description. He goes on to talk about our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the church said, amen. Amen. What a rich passage. No wonder... Jim was stirred there for prayer time this morning. The Holy Spirit must really want us to soak in Philippians 2. Jim and I didn't connect on what passage he was going to lead the prayer time in this morning. And he's like, Philippians 2. I'm like, all right, here we go. We must really need a double dose of Philippians 2. Reportedly, the Times of London put this editorial out, this question, your opinion, what is wrong with the world today? The great 20th century essayist wrote back with these words, dear sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. What's wrong with the world? Who is to blame? And how do we fix it? Every single person you meet has an opinion on this. Amen? Absolutely. Here's what's more, those opinions are being formed every day by both visible and invisible forces. Every one of us in this room has an opinion about such matters. What's wrong with the world? Who's to blame? How do we fix it? And those opinions are being formed both by invisible and invisible forces. In case you've not been paying attention, there is widespread disagreement on this topic massive. The title this morning is fair share. Fair share is a term that means a reasonable amount. That's perfect. A reasonable amount. Um, This leads to arguments from the outset. Just think about any dinner time. Around our house, what is a fair share? If the dish is really popular amongst our house and someone gets to start first, and they take, in their mind, a fair share, the rest of the family is watching with great interest to see if they agree with their assessment of fair share or not. If said dish is completely unpopular, and mom or dad dishes what they think is a fair share of healthy dose of this portion, what do you think the kids do? Foul! they cry foul immediately i mean the term fair share is so nebulous that it 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 just it immediately starts an argument about what that exactly is here's what's interesting fair share is what's being talked about making sure people get their fair share and without definition it causes problems add to this the reality that the human heart is like an ocean of need So you take anything that a human heart needs, and it's an ocean's worth of of depth to it. I think this is true if you have one kid or a whole bunch of kids. But because of this uh, ocean of need that the human heart has, in fact, I think part of the fall, part of the curse of sin on the world is this, that no matter how much attention, praise, or time parents could ever give to their kids... There's a certain sense of longing for more, that it's not quite enough. And I think that's true until they find their attention, praise, and worth in God. In fact, that's how God set it up. The human heart is restless until it finds its rest in God. So fair share is an interesting term, isn't it? Getting one's fair share. NBC has a certain twist on this. The reason this is a little bit of a wordplay here at this church is because share means some specific things around here. More on that later. So the question I want to engage in this morning is this. How do we engage in fair? Justice in a Jesus-like way. For starters, let me tell you, do not trust the donkey or the elephant to be your guide. These party animals will lead you astray. The American political answer comes largely in two varieties the left and the right. If you haven't been paying attention, it's an us versus them setup. If you're not for us, you're against us. And the predictable fruit of this kind of ideology is all around us. And sadly, the harvest is abundant. What's the harvest we've been getting from our politics? Distrust? Self-righteousness? Division? Rage? Pride? Dogmatism? Monologue? I could go on. As in all matters, we must think, feel, and behave Christianly. In a Christian way. Just like Jesus. Democrat. Republican, independent, all of these are lesser allegiances than a Christian's allegiance to Christ, and lesser by a mastery. The fallacy of the left and right is this, you must buy into all of our platform to run with us. The other fallacy is this. By running with us, you must villainize the other side of the aisle. This tearing apart of our country around these ideals is not new. Go and be a history buff. Uh, there have been worse names called um, in uh, seats of government by far in the past than is currently going on. It's nothing new. It may be cyclical, and for a season it may have seemed a little bit more tame. Jesus walked the same world that we walked, and his time shared many similarities to ours. The life and teaching of Jesus was so incredibly countercultural that he upset both parties. Were he to walk the earth today, he would do the same thing. The kingdom that Jesus announced and lived critiques and exposes the lesser kingdoms that are being built by temporary kings and queens. The temporary kings and queens of our day are not just politicians, but people in power. Many of them are talking heads. They have a massive following. What's kind of curious about the times we live in now is that anyone from anywhere can have a massive following on social media and be what's called a social influencer, meaning they're influencing the opinions of people. The kingdom of God, is what Jesus called it, is available to us today. The kingdom Jesus announced, lived, and proclaimed is available to us today. I going to show you a series we did years ago called Red Words. And what it was is a, a whole sermon series just on the stories and sermons of Jesus. The little subtext was that the, the greatest preacher still preaches It's available to us, right? We can read the Sermon on the Mount and hear a sermon from from Jesus. But Red Words is all about the sermons and stories of Jesus. And Jesus talks all about this kingdom of God. He compares the kingdom of God to things. He tells them made-up stories with an ethical point called parables. And what he's doing is this. He is training our loves and training our imaginations to the beauty of of God's kingdom. And we constantly need a fresh picture of this because human beings, men and women, would never come up with the picture of the kingdom of God that Jesus painted for us. I read a quote this week that I found really moving. It was a little prayer at the end of a devotional I'm doing. It says this, grant us faith, Lord, real faith that sees the world as it is, but also sees the world as you would have it to be. Help us be Christians that see the world as it really is. Not pie in the sky, not always talking about this and not having our feet on the ground, but not despairing in what is. God, give us eyes of faith to see what it can be, what it should be, what it must be, and what eventually it will be. That's the kind of Christian I want to be. Let me give you two loaded terms. Putting the words "social" and "justice" together is a little bit like mixing Mentos and soda. Anyone ever actually do that? Yeah, you put Mentos in soda, a little two-liter bottle. It's explosive and it's messy. Right? We did this for a youth group one time. I think Andres was with me, and. Uh, I said, we need to just test this out before youth groups. So we went out here at about 3.10 on a midweek day. You know what that means? That means loads of middle schoolers from John Muir were, were hovering about. And, uh, and I asked these kids, like, hey, come over here. You guys ever seen this before? They're like, no, what are you doing? I'm like, stand back, watch this. And it just, it just explodes everywhere. It's pretty awesome. YouTube it or, with your parents' permission, do it at home. So it used to be that if you take the word social justice, you used to only kind of come across this term if you took a social college, uh, maybe if, if you were really into a local chapter of, of some uh, cause type of need or activist club. But now, see if this resonates, and I quote from a book that I'll talk about later. Now is it, it, it is in our coffee shops, our ads for soda, shoes, and shaving cream, Our fast food establishments, our Super Bowls, our internet browser, our blockbuster movies, our kindergarten curriculum, our Twitter feeds, our national media, and our pulpits. It's everywhere. Social justice is a loaded term. And just like a loaded gun, you must use extreme caution when bringing it up. Les asked me this morning, what do you want back on the board? I said, put the word social justice, let's mix things up a little bit. And the team that was in here before service all kind of laughed, because they know Mentos and Soda, social justice, you put these letters together, it causes some discussion. The problem with this phrase is it's become a buzzword without any clear definition. In fact, Jonathan right away, he said, are you going to define it? I said, that's the sermon. That's part of it right there. Let me quote again. Jonah Goldberg in an article called The Problem with Social Justice from 2019 said this, I put on my prospector's helmet and mined the literature for an agreed-upon definition of social justice. He says, what I found was one deposit after another of fool's gold. From labor unions to countless universities to gay rights groups to even the American Nazi party, everyone insisted they were champions of social justice. Ring true? It's everywhere. Everyone says they're for social justice. Let me say this, Christian. If you are a Christian and name the name of Christ and follow Jesus as your Lord, you are sold out to social justice. Deeply and daily, we are committed to it. Our book commands it. Our book defines it. And our Lord models it. So hear me really clearly, Christian. The question for a Christian engaged in social justice is never if, it's how. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. We did a series uh, last summer on the book of Micah. Do you know that Micah the prophet served for something like 40 years over three administrations? When you look at our political pendulum, what do we do? We go from left to right, extreme to extreme. And whoever's in power, name calls the other person. Whoever's not in power says, those in power are awful for doing X, Y, Z. And then they come in and do exactly the same thing. I'm getting up there in age, y'all. I've been a Christian for a lot of administrations now. (laughs) I want to be like Micah. The message of Micah didn't change. He served and spoke for a God who never changes, but is always current with the times. And in the message of Micah, if you want to hear more on this, we explored God's call to seek justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. In all the justice-seeking that's gone on in the last two years, watch for the fruit of humility missing. And with that humility missing, then that peace leads again back to Mentos and Soda. This prophet stood for what was good and just, which always finds its climax in Jesus. What's amazing about Micah is it's all a pointer to the Messiah who would come one day in fleshly form. Look at the words in our title this morning, socially just like Jesus. Or it could be read a different way, socially just like Jesus. Both ought to be true. All we do, including anything that you would label social justice, must look like, sound like, and actually be like Jesus. The Bible commands not just that we execute justice, but that we seek justice. And as you know, seeking justice and even executing justice in any given situation calls for a deep level of discernment. I think I put this in your notes, but look at 1 Thessalonians 5.21. In these two short verses, it says, Test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Isn't that an incredible filter for our times? It's an incredible filter for any time. But right now, that's just an amazing filter to take this short little passage of Scripture, bring it with you, and apply it to the situations. Church, I'm challenging you, calling you, commanding you by the the Word of God, test what is called social justice. Don't reject it all outright. Don't receive it all without discernment. Test it. Because not everyone means the same thing. Back to our questions. What is wrong with the world? Who's to blame? And how do we fix it? These directly impact which direction you will pull as you strive for biblical social justice. And after testing, we're either to hold on to something, cling to it, or to abstain from it, have nothing to do with it. In First Timothy, we talk a lot about doctrine. And we use this, this picture, this metaphor of sorting berries before we eat them. You don't just take the berries randomly off the Costco shelf and go, this one will do. Well, maybe some of you do. You tend to look at it and go, okay, there's a few bad ones in here. I'll take this one. But once you take that bunch... Man, you also pay attention as you're eating each each individual berry. Those that are good, you ingest and it becomes a part of you. Those that are bad and don't pass the smell test, the look test, the whatever else test, man, you abstain from it. You get rid of that thing. In fact, some of you are like, if there's a tiny hair of anything on anything whatsoever, not only is that batch going, but every berry in my house is going, just in case they were talking to each other. We're starting over. I don't want any mold in my body. So it is with. good and bad teachers. We don't just take the teachers at Costco and go, yeah, that bunch looked good at Costco, but sometimes you get home and inside there's a barrier that's not so good. So we are to use discernment. Who gets to determine what is true and good? Is it the politicians? Polls? Celebrities? People who are super good at sports? I mean, this is who, this is who many people are listening to are being influenced by god decides what gets to be counted as lawful and what gets labeled as awful let me tell you something that's simplistic and unhelpful and i'm sure you've heard it as well it is simplistic and unhelpful to say i'm against racism it is simplistic And unhelpful to say I'm for justice. Do you know why it's simplistic and unhelpful? Because nobody overtly is for racism. Nobody overtly is for injustice. To wear a shirt, I'm for justice, may be a great conversation starter. But maybe more often than not, it's I'm for justice, and then there's a little animal next to it depicting your party. There's a little symbol next to it depicting your tribe. And it seems to indicate by implication, if you're not with this tribe, you are what? You're for injustice. We won't really do this, but you take any crowd. Say, anyone here for racism? Anyone? (laughs) Who raises their hand? The smart Alec, Right? I might have raised my hand. Yeah, that's me. Anyone for injustice? Just looking for a world full of injustice. No one! Simplistic and, unhelp- and, and, and unhelpful. What we mean by justice is where the rub is, right? The way we act is the problem. And this always involves worldview. So if people don't dig into the deeper assumptions on which opinions are built, that's the lens of worldview then what happens is we all just keep talking past one another. Meaning completely different things, even using sometimes similar terminology. Let me recommend a book to you. This is a book called Confronting Injustice Without Compromising the Truth. And basically through this book, it gets a little bit academic maybe at times. It's a little bit thick and weighty. But it's really practical and it asks 12 questions as you engage in social justice from a Christian perspective dynamite book. I would highly recommend it to you. I have a paper copy in my library. I'm happy to loan it out. Um, but in it, the author lays out two distinct categories of social justice. And what he does, he just labels them A and B. Basically says this, that from a Christian worldview and from Christian convictions, the early Christians, 300 AD, are reclaiming babies who've been left at the dump in Rome. Unwanted, uh, unwanted or wanted, the father had the legal right, state-sanctioned child abuse in the ultimate form, discard the baby if you don't want it. Christian said, not on my watch, from Christian conviction, they engage in what this author labels social justice A., Move on to William Wilberforce and his lifelong pursuit to abolish slavery in England. Come across our side of the pond and bring Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman. In Nazi Germany, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, right? Who during World War II, um, under Christian conviction, fought against that. But it's not just in ancient things. How about describing the work of World Vision, International Justice Mission, City Impact up in the Tenderloin District of San Francisco? Social justice is a distinctly Christian ideal. Yet, many have the term social justice describing some very non-Christian and some distinctly anti-Christian activities. This is what he labels social justice B. Social justice B is the banner waving over violence-loving Antifa crowds. School classrooms that are touting it a safe place so long as you adhere to its doctrine as well as movements that, according to their website, are set to disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure and much more. This all gets really hard to sort out, especially when good and bad are sort of mixed in together. Church, I implore you, keep close to the scripture. Over these last two years, I have been repeatedly astounded at the word of God being so incredibly precise to divide truth from error. I pray you continue to be astounded as well. The word of God is ever relevant, but I think in these past two years, it has proven just a clear sound, note above all the noise and din. So social justice is a loaded term, and it's everywhere. Another word that's loaded as well, but only here, is the word share. Now you go out into, you know, your Easter celebration with extended family, and they're like, don't bring up the word share. No one will say that. It's not a loaded term outside of here, but it's a loaded term here. But unlike a loaded gun, share around here is like a loaded pinata, okay? You get into the word share and just good comes raining down on you. Let me explain. We use this little visual metaphor of what a Christian, what Christian discipleship looks like. We see this play button everywhere and you see worship up in the upper left corner. That's beginning a relationship with God. That's where it all starts. Jesus said, you must be born again. Are we all born image bearers of God? Yes. Are we all born children of God? No. Because of sin, we're separated. Jesus says, you must be born again. Dan did a great job last week as a street preacher. He does this, but we do this in the office, around our uh, places we live, around our workplaces, just because we care about people. We talk about turning from a life of sin and trusting in the life of Jesus. So that's worship. And God doesn't cause us to born again and leave us orphans he causes us to be born again and puts us in a family you know who that is it's the church that's where the word community comes in so we begin by being born again we're we're placed in a community of believers and worship and community have a point what's the point it's to share this was already prayed this morning during corporate prayer we were blessed to be a blessing God says, Israel, I'm going to pick you out of nobody, not because you're so great, but because I'm so great. And I'm going to show off my power and love for humanity by raising you up as a nation, blessing you way more than anyone can fathom, and it is intended that you would be a blessing to the nations, to the whole world. It's going to come through you. The New Testament variant of that is us, Christians. God blessing you to be a blessing to our Neighborhood. So, share around here means two really distinct things. It means, quite simply, evangelism, share your faith, share the gospel. And it means being a generous steward of all that we have been entrusted. What this morning is, is part two of a two week series on share. Last week, Dan talked very specifically about sharing the gospel. That's a big part of it. A second part of it is sharing your life, sharing your stuff, sharing your gifts, sharing your experience for the benefit of others. What's our passage today? Do nothing from selfishness or vain conceit. Isn't that an incredible filter? God, is what I'm about to do, selfish? Or having to do with my pride and my name? Because if not, don't hit send. Don't open your mouth. Don't go there. Let me show you a slide. It made me laugh. I was, I was reviewing some things we've talked about years and years and years ago. Being a generous steward of all that you've been entrusted means this, it will look distinct to you personally. Whatever God has given you, whatever God has entrusted you, you be a generous steward because you're not an owner. Once we get that in our heads, we don't own our kids. We don't own our gifts. We really don't even own our wealth and the things we, that the state says we own, like our cars. We see all of life as a gift and that we're stewards of it. And we're called to be faithful, just like Jesus. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? If you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So how do I move forward in sharing, in engaging in social justice when there's so much need? Let me have you think about the words unintended consequences for a second. Sometimes the effort toward good leads to bad. I knew I was going to get to this part in the sermon and I thought about this. How many of you enjoyed the uh, Palm Sunday welcome that we had on the way in? Anybody, any of you catch that? All right. Thank you, Harrison. Thank you, Eli, for being out there. Here's what's funny. It may be a hard sell to get you to come back next week. If you know the story, Jesus had palm branches waving on the way into Jerusalem, and it didn't go so well. Seven, seven days later, he's dead. He's dead. That same crowd turned on him. So please come back. We're not going to have a different kind of biblically accurate welcome for you next Sunday. That might be an unintended consequence of waving palm branches on the way in. The Bible is a really big book. And it's possible for well-meaning Christians to inadvertently use guilt and shame to motivate people toward action. An email this week told me that my family needed a great husband and dad to be involved and intentional. A book I'm reading teaches that God's great love for the lost and the need to reach out. A conference ad informed me that my growth as a leader was needed for the health of our church as a pastor. And you go to the grocery store and there's a question, do you want to help the needy children, yes or no? And I'm like, go back to paper or plastic question. That was easier. I mean, really, do I want to help the children? Yes or no? Of course I do. But I don't know if I want to help them here in this way. Here's what I'm getting at. Add to all of this, the Bible, the Bible uh, being able to back all these ministries, all these global initiatives, all of these things that ought to be going on. And then Christians can be, can be really great at being obligated to more. Ever notice that? We can just get sucked into a vortex of of ought to be doing, ought to, should, more, all that stuff. Here's the unintended consequence that we can end up with exhausted, beat up, confused Christians. Do that long enough and some of you, this is your story. I may have come to you and said, hey, let's get you involved with your spiritual gift. Let's get you involved serving here. And an immediate wall goes up and as you let me in and are vulnerable, you say, I've had such bad experiences engaging in trying to be, as the scriptures say, selfless with my time and I just got taken advantage of, I got used, I got burned out, I was never encouraged, whatever. I want to acknowledge all of that's real and all of that happens. So with so much need, we can become paralyzed. Look at the screen for a second. We have to do something is a really uh, common kind of phrase that you hear. And what happens is the latest thing uh, is Ukraine. But just move back on a time frame. Look back on what people have changed their social uh, media cover pick to, right? There's just an ongoing onslaught of, of need and the latest crisis, and the latest thing. And there's a certain sense of people saying, we have to do something, because you can't sit by and see atrocities go on. But we have to do something is a really powerless phrase. It also lets you off the hook. To love everyone is to love precisely no one jesus leads us further along beyond loving from a distance watch the screen for a second you move a couple of words from we have to do something to i have something to do that's incredibly powerful loving the whole world world peace justice for all man easy to like easy to heart right hard to do so what if we just start with What my lane is, what my calling is, getting a sense of, I was made for this. I've got experiences and giftings and resources that can immediately move toward this. If you look at a summary of Jesus' life and mission, it's the word servant. From our passage today, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Here's what's really powerful. If you look at verse 5 of our passage, It's not just that Jesus is a servant. It's that that is ours in Christ. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So we can say, God, help me to put into practice what I already have this heart of a servant. This mind of a servant. Isn't it powerful to think that you could say yes to the right things and no to the wrong things and serve joyfully for years and years and years? I think that's really powerful and really motivating. We did a series called Greater Than, and some of you remember this, but if you were to take your arms and wrap it around a beach ball, most of us care about a beach ball-sized worth of stuff. It's pretty big. We can't even quite close our arms because the beach ball is pretty big. But what if this is what we care about, and we can't do it all, so we do nothing? The world doesn't change. We don't change. But if you take this as one sphere, and there was a smaller sphere inside of it that was a ball that you could get your hands around, and this represents what you can handle. All of us can handle a certain size sphere. And what we can handle is a smaller sphere than what we care about. Make sense? The distance between what we care about and what we can handle is a simple word called priorities. We just set our priorities and reset our priorities and reevaluate our priorities. We can't do it all, so do nothing. No, no, no. We have a large bucket of care, but we say, God, what is it that's in my hands? What can I handle? In you, what can I handle? We don't look around to other people because other people have different sized balls that they can handle, so to speak. Here's what's really, really powerful. If you look at the service of Jesus, a snapshot of him serving in Mark is that he was baptized. He was tempted by Satan. By the way, one of the temptations of Satan is serve me. So his servanthood was tested. He proclaimed the gospel, he recruited a team, called disciples, he preached in the church, he encountered resistance, he gained fame, he healed many but not all, he had personal devotion devotion time off with the Father, he had demands and expectations placed on him, he disappointed people and moved on resolutely with his mission. Guess what? I'm not out of Mark chapter 1. Mark one thirty seven says this, everyone is looking for you. Subtext, demands, expectations. But you know what? Jesus didn't do it all. Jesus knew his lane. He knew what he was here for. He left people unhealed. Think about that. He left needs unmet. I think every town he left, he left them disappointed. So, hear me really clearly, Christian. Setting your priorities around social justice, setting your priorities around God, what is it that in you I can handle, I'm supposed to handle, means disappointing people, it means choices.